in downtown Enterprise, Alabama, stands a prominent landmark to the boll weevil. It was erected in 1919 to show that they appreciate this destructive insect. In the South, cotton dominated the agricultural industry. More and more land was earmarked and demanded that the farmers grow cotton because there was so much money and demand in cotton. And you may or may not know that the cotton industry in the South was built on the back of chattel slavery and later sharecropping. And in 1892, think about that time frame, the boll weevils first crossed the southern border from Mexico to Texas. You could insert your own border joke there. The boll weevil is an agricultural menace that ravages cotton fields. As the boll weevils cross the border, you can imagine into Texas, you can imagine as they saw the cotton fields, like they, this is the promised land. We have made it. And so they would, they just absolutely ravaged the fields and crops would dissipate. And as they migrated further and further inland, farther and farther across the United States, as they found cotton field after cotton field after cotton field, it was in 1910, the boll weevil plague reached Enterprise, Alabama. Year after year, farmers losing their entire crop and their livelihood. And then along comes George Washington Carver, a former slave, who began to advocate for planting peanuts instead of cotton. You see, the boll weevil doesn't eat peanut plants. Carver traveled across Alabama and other states teaching about crop diversification and all the ways that you can use peanuts. If you have a peanut allergy, I'm sorry. <laughs> Theodore Roosevelt touted the weevil as a blessing in disguise. The farming industry in Alabama was saved and they changed their crops from cotton to peanuts. And even those that keep some of the cotton fields, those cotton fields were saved because the bull weevils didn't have anything else to feast on. There wasn't as much. And the cotton prices skyrocket because the demand was still there and the supply was less. It was an agricultural and economic boom for the South. So they erected a monument to the bull weevil. In their minds, if it hadn't been for the boll weevil, they would never have discovered peanuts. They learned that even out of disaster, that there can be a great delight. I mean, I tell this story not to lift up the people of Enterprise, Alabama. I mean, I don't know. You think about the time frame. Maybe the boll weevil was a punishment to them. I, I do know, I don't know that for a fact, I do know that instead of a statue of an insect, that maybe they should have erected a monument to George Washington Carver. It wasn't the boll weevil that was a blessing in disguise. It was a black man, a former slave, 
that was a blessing in disguise or a blessing they couldn't recognize. The point of all in this telling the story, the point of the scripture we read today, the point of the gospel is Jesus makes things new. Jesus is fixing a world that is corrupted and broken by sin and death and bringing new and everlasting life. Jesus makes beautiful things out of dust. Jesus, has a, Jesus is the blessing in disguise. Life out of death. Life out of death. Romans 28, 828, it says this, and we know that the, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. And the good and the blessing may or may not be in this world and in this time and in this place. But the, what it really is talking about here, Romans 8, is the good that God promises to his people is a relationship everlasting with him forever and ever. And that is our beginning of understanding of what heaven is. What the kingdom of God is. It starts here and now and is in a place and a time in the future which is fully fulfilled. God has a plan. All things work together for him and his plan for us. Nothing is outside of his control. Romans 8.18 For I consider the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That context is like, as like everything that is in this world is not outside of God's control. And that he uses all those things to eventually bless us with the ultimate good. Himself. Us. Forever. Let's dig in to this passage a little bit more. John 9, 1 through 2. As he passed by, as Jesus passed by, he saw a, blind, a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You'll see the Jewish custom in that time, people thought in this culture that all suffering can be traced back to sin. If a person is suffering, it is because of their sin. Now, we a little bit have that custom or that assumption about people. And here we, they think, okay, here's a blind person born from birth. Was it that person's sin that caused him to be blind? I mean, how could that be? We just think logically. Or was it his parents that sinned and therefore he is blind because of his parents? It's this kind of duality that they have. It has to be one or the other because sin causes the blindness in their mind. And Jesus answers in 9.3, it was not this man, sin, or his parents, but the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus answers to them, it's neither. It's neither. He rejects their dualism. He rejects their false dilemma or their fallacy that it's one or the other. In a sense, that the people that are coming to Jesus are repeating the problems that are, are solved in the book of Job. You remember Job's friends? Job begins this, has, has this incredible suffering in his life. And we know the cause of Job's suffering when we read the book. It's God. God allows his suffering. And Job is a righteous man. 
And yet all his friends come to him like, Job, I think you need to confess your sin. I think you need to repent. There must be something wrong. And this over chapter after chapter after chapter of this repeated his friends just trying to comfort him, but missing the point. They think they know the cause of Job's suffering. In this specific case, Jesus is saying, this person was born blind, so at this moment, the work of God can be displayed. I want you to very, he's saying very specifically, in this case, in this person, he's being very clear, this person was born blind because God has a plan, so in this moment, the works of God could be displayed to all. It's very important. I want you to hear. We cannot make a theology of suffering from this verse or from this story. We can't do it. In fact, I want you to understand that Scripture has a holistic view of suffering that we often minimize in our life. We often sway back and forth and we think, oh, this is the cause and this is why suffering happens. Scripture has a little bit more holistic view on the theology of suffering. So why do we, we suffer now? What is this holistic view? Why do we suffer? We've talked about it a couple of months ago. There's really kind of four reasons why there is suffering. And we're, the first reason why you suffer or why we suffer is our sin. You actually do suffer because of your own individual sin. God actually promises us at time. Exodus 25 says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for the Lord your God am a jealous God, visiting the, the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the fourth and third and fourth generation to those who hate me. That there actually is consequences for disobedience and sin. And that is why sometimes you suffer. Jesus says in this case, it's not why the blind man suffer. It's not why he's blind, because of his sin or his parents' sin. So does our sin causes real suffering. The other cause of suffering in our lives is other people's sin. Other people sin against us, and they cause suffering in our lives. The case example, the point of this, is the cross. Jesus suffers in this world not because of his sin. He doesn't sin at all. He suffers in this world because of our sin, because people tangibly practically sin against him and nail him to a cross. That is other people's sin. You and I experience other people's sin and it makes us suffer. And then there's the third one is the universal consequence of sin. Luke 13, two through three, and says, and he answered them, do you think that the Galileans who were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And the, the context there is that there were some Galileans that uh, their blood was sacrificed and mixed in an unholy way by Pilate. And, he, and they're saying, oh, they must be worse sinners. That's why they're suffering and dealing with that. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. I want you to understand sin impacts everyone. And they're not worse sinners than you. You're all sinners. Christians, I mean... Christians, we have an understanding 
that sin is pervasive in this world. And it's more pervasive than you and I can actually see and imagine and dream of. It's bigger than in our hearts. I mean, the more and more we walk with God, the more and more God reveals the depravity in our hearts. The more and more he begins to reveal the depravity of the world. He can never show it to us all. It would destroy us. The point is, we have a theology that everything is completely broken. So even when we talk about in this world that there are systematic things that are broken in this world, it shouldn't disrupt us too much as Christians. We should understand, yeah, I can understand why systems are broken. Because everyone is broken. Everything in this world. And I'm not saying you have to agree, okay, that is a, that's a sin or that's a sin. Like, I'm not saying, you, we have a theology that makes us understand that all things are broken. And broken humans, totally broken humans, make totally broken systems. Makes sense. We have a theology that helps us under concept. And we suffer because of all of that. And the last one that may be more disruptive to us is that we sin because we're united with Jesus. We're united, sin, be, people will be against us because we're united with Jesus. But even harder for us to get to that is we actually suffer because God gives us suffering because he loves us, because he knows we're totally broken. And that suffering is a good thing because God is using it for our good, our eternal Good. Now, that is hard to take. It is hard to actually say, hey, I'm really excited about this suffering gift. It is a good thing, ultimately, in my life. We have it in 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Paul says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. I want you to understand that this gift is not from Satan. This gift, this thorn in the side of Paul is from God. And why? It is for Paul's sanctification. Paul's journey to become more Christ-like. For he doesn't become arrogant and conceited and think this ministry is his. These words are his. No, no. It's all from God. This is formation of the character of God in Paul. You and I can get caught up in suffering and events. We can get caught up in abusive relationships, the other people that sin against us. We can get caught up in our own sin that we do. We can get caught up in the illnesses or the circumstances that we have. And we think it could be, oh man, this is a direct consequence of my sin. I don't know if you get like that at all. I do. I do. And so then what do we do? We punish ourselves. Hear very clearly, God is not punishing you. God is not punishing you. God is out to save you. God is out to change you and to transform you. All good things come from God, even when we can't recognize them. Here's what I want you to know. There is consequence for sin, period. There is consequences for the sin you do every day in your life. The other thing I want you to know is you do not know why things happen. 
You do not know why the circumstances you have in your life, you do not know why you suffer. Do not try to, those four things, think, aha, that's why God has given it to me. You don't know. Unless you have Jesus right here who tells about the blind man, hey, this is the reason. You don't know. So the other thing is don't let other people tell you. Don't let other people be like Job's friends and tell you, this is why you're suffering. This is why you have the consequences in your life. Because they don't know either. They don't know. And if they tell you the Holy Spirit told them, man, back away from that. The other thing I want you to know is take sin seriously. I mean, just because you don't know why you may suffer under consequences doesn't mean you say, well, it's not my sin, so I'm okay. Always take your sin seriously. Root it out in your life. As God reveals it to you, help God, let God continue to take it out. Let the people of, Christ, of his body, his church. This is the purpose, the, one of the major purposes of the church is so that the church can help in the sanctification, God's work in you to begin to perfect you, to begin to root out sin in your life. So if you see sin in others, in the church, in the body of Christ, you ought to speak it out in love. If you need to figure out what that means, you can come help walk with me. If you see it in yourself, help tell the church and tell the church, help me in this. I need help. Don't expect the good that God promises to you to happen right away. Don't expect the good. God has a plan and a purpose for all things. Because a lot of times we seek out that good right now. All the good that God gives you right now, and there is good things that you ought to revel in, and even the, in the suffering that it could be a good thing as well. All those good things are half measures goods. Meaning they are only a shadow of the good that God actually promises to you. And so they are good shadows. They are pointers to the real good. But don't be seeking after those, these temporary good things. Enjoy them, but know that God has promised something much better. You see, what reality is, is that even this blind man, the good is right before him. Jesus is the good. Being with him is the good. Here's what you ought to know. The mind was the mind the mind. The man was blind because Jesus said, This man was blind because I'm going to show the glory of God for it to be slayed to all. And really so that they know that he is God, which is the good for all people. So that, that, that Romans 8, 28, the good that's being carried out is going to be revealed. God has a plan for all of his children. And we know that God can use all suffering. This is not outside, outside of his capability. He can make all things new. And in fact, he promises to make all things new. He can bring life out of death. He can take broken, sinful, outward enemies of himself and make him his children. This is what God does. He can do that, and he can do it with you. In verses 4 through 5 in John chapter 9, he goes on to after and says this, we 
must work the works of him who sent me. Why those day? The night is coming. When no one can work as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, I think, it's, I hope this kind of shocks you a little bit. Do you not expect him to say, I must work the works of him? But he doesn't. He makes it a plural. Jesus actually says in here, right, this man is meant to be blind so the work of God can be displayed in him. And then he goes on to say, hey, we, to his disciples, we, we must work the works of God, of, of the Father who sent me. We are to do this together. Jesus immediately includes all of his followers, all of his disciples to enter into his work. That is, I mean, it's extraordinary that Jesus does this. That he's saying, you are invited to do the good work that I was created for. Because it's your work that you were created for. I am inviting you. You were created to do this. And, and we know in the other Gospels, Jesus almost immediately sends out the disciples two by two into the surrounding towns. And he tells them to so what? give out the, the message, the peace of God. When we talked about that, that word peace, that word shalom, which is this kind of holistic, big kind of word that doesn't mean the absence of conflict, but reconciliation. Bring out the message of reconciliation with God and with all people to the towns. Tell them about the reconciliation of God. He tells them, this is your job, to tell people about this. In the immediate context, Jesus says, says we, can, we do this ministry wild as day. We must do all that work that God has called me, including healing this man. And very precisely, ultimately, the work that Jesus was called to do in the day was his death and resurrection. So what Jesus says, hey, why I am present with you, do these works with me. And then he references the night. What is the night? The day is when Jesus is present. The night is actually on the cross. What happens to all his disciples on the cross? They cease to work. They cease to do any work of the reconciliation. They all flee or they all hide in the upper room. No one works while Jesus hangs on the cross and lies in the place of the dead. They're all invited back into the work at the resurrection. Come back in. We've got work to do. Go tell people about me. Go everywhere to the ends of the earth and tell people about me. But the dark, the night, is when Jesus flies in the place of the dead. The new day is the resurrection. You see, Jesus makes it very clear. I am the light of the world. I am the one that brings light into all the world. I am the one that brings the truth into all the world. You see, Jesus is the minister, and he's the ministry. And he is saying, you are ministers too. You are ministers that point to the light, that point to me. You're not the light, but your job right now in the day is point to the light. And what's interesting is when he say the day, the day is where Jesus is because he's the light. But the reality is in John 1, 4 through 5, he tells us what this world is really like. In him was life. The life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. In the day of this world, it's actually dark until Jesus enters in. 
Jesus is the light of the world. When people see Jesus, they have an opportunity to see and respond to the light, to the truth. So when he walks the earth, the people that physically see him, they have an opportunity to respond to him. Our job is to show and to demonstrate and to point with our words and our works who Jesus is. So when people have an opportunity to respond to the light. You see this, what Jesus does to the blind man is not just a miracle, it's a sign. It's a sign that points to himself, it points to the work of the Father in the world that's mediated through his Son to shed light to all who live in darkness. For, for the blind man, Jesus is using this, this is metaphorical darkness, right? He, he's physically blinded and lives in darkness, and now he sees the day and light. And it goes on, and we'll read on in the rest of this chapter uh, next week, is that it actually is for a spiritual sight, that you all live in darkness. You think you live in the light of day, but you all live in darkness, and you do not see the truth. And why Jesus is present, why Jesus is shown, people have the opportunity to respond and see the truth. Spiritual sight, seeing Jesus for who he really is. Then I want to get back to that word sent. Because he includes us into this ministry. What it means to be sent. John 9, 4 through 5 says, We must work the works of him who sent me, Jesus says. Jesus, the Father sent me. Jesus is sent by the Father to do the work. And we are being sent by Jesus to be included in part of the work. And then he goes on, he emphasizes this word sent in this passage. In John 9, 7, and he said, Go wash in the pool of Siloam which means sent. I mean, John makes a real emphasis for everyone knows what shalom, shalom means. It means sent. It's this, it's this constant message of being sent into the world, yet you are sent. Go to the pool of sent. He sends the blind man, sends to the pool of the sent. John makes sure we know what this word is all about. So what are you and I sent to do? Isn't it interesting how the blind man actually quickly obeys? There's no question from the blind man. He just obeys. I mean, something absurd is happening to him. He's still blind at this point. Mud is put on his eyes. Worse than that, right? Mud made out of saliva and spit is put on his eyes. And he goes, all right, I'm going to obey. What are we sent to do? John chapter 20, verses 21 through 22, Jesus makes it clear that we are sent. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. There's that shalom. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. All of us have a ministry, and it's the ministry of Jesus to point to the light, to point to Jesus. He goes on. And, he, and when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, not to lengthen my sermon anymore because I don't want to. Right? I, I want you to understand that he's not saying that if you forgive, people will be forgiven. No, no, he's saying this is the work of God, forgiveness. 
we are called, it, it, it's not the power of you and I or the power of the church to forgive eternally. That's the power of God. We, we are given the message of forgiveness by the power of the Holy Spirit that resides in us to point to the one who forgives us at the cross. This is the message. And I can go more into showing that, but that's a sermon when we get to John chapter 20, which will be in about three years. <laughs> he is saying, you are to be a forgiving people. You are to be a forgiving people. That would be one way you point people to the message of forgiveness and the one who forgives. But in general, you are given to the message, you are given the ministry to point to, to the one who actually forgives. This is our ministry. Now it gets even kind of crazier in this passage. Particularly in this context, in this passage, who does Jesus heal? Why does he pick a blind man? Why does he just heal anyone? He heals a blind man from birth whom they all assumed it was because of his sin or his parents' sin that that was the cause of his blindness. Here's the thing. That blindness and that sin, they would assume that that actually was unclean. That this man was unclean because of son sin and because he was blind, because he was deformed. He's unclean. He would have been forgotten, removed, cast out. Jesus reaches out and heals a forgotten, unclean, and unwanted person. Why? He says it's for the glory of God. And then this comes, it's like, why does Jesus actually do it this way? We've, why does he heal him with saliva and mud? Jesus, we have seen, even in this gospel, that he heals with words. Things change because he wants them to change. He doesn't have to physically touch people to heal them. He changes water to wine because he wills it. He doesn't actually touch the water. He, he's healed other people in this gospel just by saying, you are healed, go. But here he does this dramatic display of using spit and saliva, something incredibly different, and makes this public scene about it. Why would he do that? It doesn't clearly say why. But here's the thing, as I told Dio. There's one of the reasons, one of the things we can explain is that God is very clear and makes this emphasis that he creates all humanity out of the ground and then he breathes life into them. Out of the ground, out of, out of ashes. In Genesis 2, 7, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust from the ground and breathed his, into his nostrils and the breath of life and the man became a living creature. This miraculous thing that humans come from, and this word Adam actually is connected, it's the same word as the ground. It's kind of this interconnection to theirs. So here, I think we almost in seeing is, is Jesus using that same imagery and taking the ground and putting it on this man and say, look at, I am recreating humanity in my image. And just as the Father took and breathed left, so am I, just like the Father, recreating humanity from the ground. But I think it's even more than that. Because you see, saliva and spit 
are very clearly connected to uncleanliness. As you know, when people spit, it's not something you kind of revel in. It's like, ew, gross. That is unclean. In Leviticus 15.8, And if the one who discharges spit on someone who is clean, then he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Spit and saliva, human fluids out of the body is considered unclean. And so here Jesus does, he goes to the ground, he spits in the ground, something that which is unclean for everything. He takes and makes this mud and puts it on this unclean person. What a demonstration. It's not just a gross thing, it's a symbolic thing. Jesus was sent to the unholy, to the unclean, to the sinners, to the broken, to the forgotten. And I just want you to make it very clear, from God's perspective, that's all of us. You are unclean in comparison to the holy God. You are a deep, dead sinner in comparison to the glorious God. And yet here it is. This God who is holy comes down and resides with the unholy. Not to be unholy himself, but to change the unholy. And here he has from his breath, he takes the unholy thing that he says, this is a symbol of unholiness. And he takes it, not because it makes him unholy, because the one who is holy is not made unholy, but makes all things holy. And when Jesus touches, things are made holy. And when Jesus spits, that's holy spit. When Jesus touches that man, that's holy. You see, from our perspective, in our culture back then and right now, we value humans differently than God. We show partiality all the time, and we judge people for their behaviors, for the ways they look, they're wealthy. What can they can do for us? We put different values on human. And Jesus doesn't put any different values. And he makes a clear effort while he is here on earth to go to the people in which we would not go to. Not to saying that he wouldn't go to we, but because he's demonstrating that you're just like one of them. That you're all in the same boat, in my opinion. Jesus heals the unclean blind man in whom people assumed it was because of his sin, in an unclean way to demonstrate he is the one that heals. He is the one that makes holy. Jesus is the blessing in disguise. Jesus is the blessing in disguise and a surprise for many people. They couldn't even recognize that he was the blessing in disguise. Because he comes in a way that surprises them. He hangs out with people that surprises them. Perhaps that's even more perplexing in this story. It's not that Jesus is the blessing disguised, but the disguised are the blessed. Just like Roosevelt and the people of Enterprise, Alabama, couldn't see George Washington Carver as the blessing in disguise because of the color of his skin. We easily overlook who God is blessing, where God is working, and how God is working. 
because of all our assumptions and prejudices. Jesus makes a concerted effort to go to the people that we wouldn't go to. And says, I mean, he says it right in the, in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the poor. All the people, what do you mean? Those aren't the people that, no. The blessing is for the disguised. For those that you don't see. Jesus goes to the undervalued the leftovers, the forgotten, the unexpected, so too we are sent to those places and to those people whom the world has discarded. The truth in all of this, I want you to hear it very clearly. Jesus makes saints out of sinners. He doesn't make saints out of saints. Jesus makes holy out of unholy things. Jesus makes beautiful things out of spit and saliva. Jesus brings life out of death. Jesus is the blessing in disguise. And the skies of this world are the blessed by him so too you are sent to point to him, to all people, even those that are disguised in front of you. Let us pray. Gracious Father, I am so thankful that I am not the judge of this world, that I am not the judge of people, and that you have eyes and you have ways to see people in which I cannot see. Lord, give us the eyes. Help us to see in your light your people, your creation. Help us to know that we are sent by you. Not because, not because we deserve it, not because that we inherently earned it, but because you called us. You called unholy things to be holy and to be sent by you to the unholy and to broken people just like us. Lord, help us. Help us to remove all the masks in this world. Help us to remove our own veil that is over us, Lord, and to see how you see the world and to see how you see people. Help us to love them in the way that you love them. Lord, may our hearts turn to you. Help us to see how and where you're doing your work. In ourselves, the people around us, and the people we wouldn't see. Praise be to you. We give you all the glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.